Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Blog and Bedrock Games, and I'm here with Nick Seidler and Robert Warnock to talk about their new book, Red, White, and Who, from ATB Publishing. Um, it's written by Stephen Warren Hill, Jennifer Adams Kelly, Nicholas Seidler, Robert Warnock, Janine Fennick, and John LaValle. Um, guys, why don't you just, uh, for people who might not know, just explain what the book is and why it would be of interest to Doctor Who fans. So basically, Red, White, and Who is the story of Doctor Who in America, and it starts really in 1965 and goes forward pretty much to present day. I think the last thing we added in the book would have been from June this past year. Was that right, Nick, where that RV's tweet showed up? Was that in June? Yeah, I think that was June, and then there was also uh, Doctor Who happened to have been in also in June, I believe, on Jeopardy. They had a Jeopardy question, of course, about Doctor Who. So those are both in the book as well. So yeah, because I mean, it's pretty current. You guys even got up to the Bruce Campbell uh, uh, post I saw, which was which yes. was not that long ago. So no, that um, was that was April April of this year. So we were still trying to add things in at at. As long as we could, I mean, we kind of locked in what we'd written for the main text of the book mm -hmm. by about June, like July of 2016. But as we were going through the editing and the update process, you know, you can't stop, you know, the awesomeness that's Doctor Who. So um, there were still things that were happening in America related to Doctor Who, you know, episodes are being aired and all kinds of things like that. So it just kept developing. So we tried to include as much as we could. Um, and, you know, we still track all the information that's not in the book, even though, you know, we just, it, the book officially just came out, but it's been three months and we have a, a little stack of things, whatever that might be. So now I also, it's, this is a really dense book, by the way, I was very surprised by how, like it's six, it's like 600 pages or so, I think. And there's a lot of content to it. So I guess my question was like how you organized all the research and cause it's, it's very like, like there's appendices that have all kinds of information. There's, there's uh, you know, just like very detailed accounts of like where Dr. Who has been referenced in like American media and, 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 and not to mention like the history, like you give the history of the broadcast and then the history of it in various types of media. So I was curious about sort of the, the research approach that you guys took. We all kind of took, well, we took separate sections, kind of. The thing that each of us thought we probably knew the most about to start with, and then, you know, some of the stuff we worked on together, like we, you know, four or five of us would get together maybe on a Saturday and spend all day going over a topic. And the whole thing kind of came together gradually at first and then towards the end you know it was kind of like a snowball thing where when you first start you think we're never gonna get this finished and then <laughs> near the end everything kind of just falls into place yeah we 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 knew that all of us had different areas of expertise right so while there were there was a big group of us and and i'll say this a lot of people go like wow there's like six names on this book all of which had to be on the book because no one person would have been able to cover all of the information that was in there. And we realized that 
some of us knew more about book releases and VHS releases, and some of us knew more about comic books and fanzines, uh, fan video productions. And so we kind of set our expert loose on that area, and then we would all contribute into that area as much as we could, right? So the advantage is that all of us had some experience. None of us had all the experience in those areas, right? And so we worked pretty hard to divvy up the work. And, and one person who probably deserves uh, kind of an interesting credit is John LaValle, because John LaValle, um, his name is on the book, though uh, he didn't significantly write part of it. But the reason that it was important, very important to include him, was uh, John has a background as a professional librarian, and he was officially the researcher for the book in that he did a lot of uh, library research for us. He organized and cataloged all of the primary sources that we had for the books, as well as photographs, and he organized them all so that we could then use them later for the book. So part of our approach to the whole team was we, we would work together, but we had a central person who we could send mm -hmm. information to who would catalog it and set it aside for us, and then as we went to write, we would have this like packet of information or, or group of sources that we could use okay and um i'll say this you said it's a pretty dense book you're, you're right it's over 700 pages and you could as kill someone with this book nick you could kill somebody <laughs> with this book <laughs> exactly um we're proud of it you know and and it's got over 600 color photos in it and one of the things that i think is important is just that people realize that while it's a big book and it seems we're talking about it and it seems pretty factual and information heavy. I think it's an easy read and I think visually it's an amazingly yeah. fun thing to just page through and look at. So I think looking at it myself, I think that number one, it's one where you could, you could sit down and read through cover to cover and it, it would be great that way. You could also just have it on hand and flip through it, reading relevant sections that are of interest to you. And like you said, like there's a, I, I really did like all the visuals in there. There's, there's, a, there's not only are there like some interesting uh, you know, nostalgia items. Even if you don't watch Doctor Who, some of the stuff in there, it's like, oh, I remember those. But uh, but the photographs, there, there's some really interesting photographs of people that of of actors and stuff from periods where I haven't seen photos of them from. So it's like, oh, I never saw him with a hairstyle like that before. Or you know, there, there are some there are some really cool pictures in there. Um, so it's it, it's very engaging visually, and the way that it's laid out, the text and the visual elements kind of all. You know, it, it, it's 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 something that I think you can enjoy in a variety of of uh, of ways. But um, but I guess there was also there's a the early portion of the book deals with the air dates, which I think is is uh, you know of particular interest to Americans because you know it came here later, and I I it also describes the sort of the complexity of that. Uh, can you? talk a little bit about you know how it's not cut and dry i thought i thought they were just going to say like you know you know this day it airs in america and it's 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 a lot more involved well i think nick you were actually the one who discovered this we i think none of us realized that it actually showed up in tv guide in 1965 in upstate new york because they were showing it in Canada, so people that lived in upstate New York could have actually watched it. We haven't found anyone that did see it 
back then, but you know, officially the day it first aired was August twenty first, nineteen seventy two, which was why we picked the um August twenty first release date because it was forty five years from the day that it first aired here. But yeah, I, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, it yeah, the air dates get complicated because people particularly think of it starting out on PBS, but really it was independent stations with the first wave of Pertwee stories, but it didn't really catch on too well, and it was really late 70s where it took off, and a lot of that has to do with Star Wars, really, because it was... they, They had a bunch of stories available right away that they could show, and it was people were looking for shows like that after Star Wars got so popular, so that's kind of what helped it explode in the U.S. like in the late 70s and early 80s. Another thing that um, we discovered was that the the Peter Cushing uh, you know, retread movies, the color Dalek movies, you know, were shown here in the United States, and, and that there was a kind of a fun attempt at like trying to promote that and make that a thing. And that got Dr. Who known a little bit in the United States, but I think Rob nails it exactly on the head when he says until kind of star Wars hit Dr. Who wasn't really on people's radar, though it had started airing as early as 72. And I had come across the, the, the TV guides uh, listings um, as part of the fanzine project that I do, but uh, Steve Hill did additional research, went online, hunted down some of the original copies of TV. That, um, sure enough, the Canadian broadcasts, because they were on the border, were listed in the early 60s already. So Americans across the border could watch Doctor Who, um, but we don't count that as the official American broadcast because they originate from Canada, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because Doctor Who becomes very popular, and right at the height of the popularity, unfortunately in the UK, you know, the popularity is waning a little bit, so Americans want more and more Doctor Who, and then in, in the mid-80s, Doctor Who goes in hiatus on the other side of the pond, right? So. Well, one of the things I found interesting, too, is it sounds like Americans were encountering Doctor Who in print before they encountered it in... Um... In in, act, in terms of actually seeing, like they were hearing stories about Doctor Who, in uh, you know, from England, uh, in in uh, I, I there were there were like some some articles on it and things like that, and so I thought that was kind of interesting because you know it, you know pre pre internet age, if something like that is going on in another another country, you know, unless you go there, you're really not going to be able to to watch it. So, um, so that people, yeah. Are, yeah. oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, most people don't realize that Variety magazine uh, in the USA uh, did a review of Doctor Who the week after it aired in the UK. And, you know, we, we now live in the digital age where you get that information right away. So someone had to be very deliberate about reviewing something that was televised in the UK, but putting it into an American publication. So pretty interesting. Now, the other thing that I found kind of interesting is that, there, you know, Americans... It, it, it came here mainly through PBS, is where most people encountered it, 
and that that because of the way that Doctor Who works, uh, that that maybe had some consequences for uh, you know the, it wasn't necessarily all good. Is sort of what I is sort of the, the the what I was getting from some of the some of the history there. That there were there were some some maybe some com- commerciality problems uh, involved. Yeah, it gets to, you know one of the the things that we talk about in the book is if you watched it here anyone who watched it here probably started with a different story mm-hmm. because you kind of just found it by yourself you know it's unusual because Jennifer and I both happened to start watching it on the same day just coincidentally but for you to find someone who would have started watching it the same day as you or saw the same story as you did as their first story would have been pretty unusual and part of the problem too with PBS it's it you know people don't realize it wasn't really a network so different different PBS stations treated it differently like out in Colorado um, you know where they did kind of going off on a tangent here but where they did the first really big documentary about it in the US it was pretty popular and they treated it really well in Chicago it was really popular but they never really promoted it mm. it was kind of like the redheaded stepchild of their programming in a way the ginger stepchild right yeah sorry well, and the time slots were interesting too because it was it was like following hard news and sesame street and and things like that so <laughs> It was, you know, is and this is this is very thorough in that respect. You get a real sense of, um, uh, of of the, uh, um, you know, just just sort of, you know, what it was actually like when it was airing at the time, and and uh, and also you have in the appendices you have a really great uh, breakdown of places where it didn't air. So there are actually like four states I think where it didn't, where at least didn't air. I'm assuming network and PBS and things like that. Um, yeah, I think um, particularly in the West, like Idaho, Wyoming, um, I think Montana and Hawaii, it never aired. And I think even, um, no, I'm pretty sure Salt Lake City did air it. But yeah, if you lived out in the West, it's possible, you know, unless you lived near a bordering state or near Canada that you probably never saw it until the new series. Mm. And, uh, the other, the other thing that was pretty cool in this was, uh, was the, t- there's a whole section, like you guys cover every form of media pretty much that Dr. Who has appeared in, which I think is a great way to organize a lot of the discussion and the section on VHS and home video that that was one of my because because it's like a walk down memory lane just in general <laughs> like just you know the, the the technology that I haven't thought of and uh, but also the and and again I think this existed in like every fandom so like, again even if people didn't watch Doctor Who or they're not Doctor Who fans, I think they'll appreciate this the the black market for Doctor Who video cassettes oh, that yeah. was that could you talk a little about because that was that was a pretty interesting section of the book it's well, funny that oh go uh, ahead. I, I, I was just going to lead into this. There's some humor here because Rob was my source for black market (laughs) tapes back in the 80s. And we didn't know each other as well at the time. 
but now we're good friends. So there's, there's a little joke. I'll, I'll actually let Rob respond so, to that. So, so. There, there's a lay, there's a term for people like him, right? There's a, 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 a what's the, it's it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, uh, big name fans, right? Is it what you're oh well, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I was technically a big name fan, but it's funny because I have a new boss, and I met with him like a week ago, and I just happened to be wearing a polo shirt with a Dalek on it, and he said. <laughs> Oh, I see you're a Doctor Who fan. I said, oh, you recognize it? He's like, yeah, I'm more of a comic book guy, but I think everyone knows what a Dalek is. And we started talking, and I mentioned the book. And he said, oh, Doctor Who, isn't that like people like pirate it and stuff like that? And I said, well, not so much now. But yeah, back in the 80s, it was a big thing. And I said that was kind of how I first got involved. He said, oh, so you were a, you were like a pirate video person I'm, yeah i guess i kind of have to admit to that we, yeah i remember a friend of mine got his hands on the peter cushing movies back in the early 80s he got video copies that we were like so excited well doctor who movies it was amazing but yeah and you know one of the things we talk about in the book is if you had a copy of ambassadors of death they all came from the same source. Larry Sherritt, who is from Chicago, got it recorded in upstate New York, and everybody's copy came from his. And some of these were like literally. Were some of these literally people recording the television while they were, while they were airing? That's them? what we did. We bought a PAL TV and a PAL VCR, you know, because the systems weren't compatible, and you'd have to point a camera at the TV. <laughs> but you didn't care. You were happy to get, especially, well, new stories or older stories. You know, this was before they um, sold the Pertwee or the um, Hartnell and Trump packages, The um, what was still existing at the time of the color Pertwee stories. I, I, I want to make a comment about that, and that is that for for to this they might not have ever had that experience but because uh there's a frame rate difference between the pal which is the the standard that's used in the uk and the ntsc standard that's used in the usa and so even if you were to point a video camera at the the tv and record it onto the american system there'd be this darkening where every now and then the frame that you recorded was dark rather than bright because mm -hmm. of the frame rate difference. And so, you know, we kind of talk about this in the, in the book a little bit affectionately. It was called flicker vision because it would look like you were watching like almost an old 1920s movie that was flickering <laughs> and you'd have to learn how to adjust your eyes to that. But man, you were just happy to see it. And what's yeah. interesting about that and how it's different from now is even if you were getting the most current Doctor Who, let's say the sixth Doctor in 1985, right? And you were watching the newest Doctor Who, it would also have that same bad effect because there was no digital broadcast at the time that would work regardless of where you were in the world. So there were all these like weird cheats that fans were finding to try to watch the show that they liked and to try to get it as quickly as possible. So. Yeah, I used to. Speaking of incompatibility, I used to have a PAL Betamax uh, VCR, oh. so that, that was uh, <laughs> didn't get a lot of use. But <laughs> and the thing is, the pirating has really not completely gone away because you know when Rose got leaked, that was being 
traded to people, you know, sent out to people. And even now, people can't wait to see it here because it's, you know, we're between five and eight hours later. So, you know, people have ways of streaming it live from the UK or uploading it and, and, you know, doing file sharing because they don't want to either wait or they don't want to watch it with commercials. Fandom is a little bit like warfare. It sort of breeds innovation, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, another thing, too, BBC America used to cut a lot of parts of the episodes for a while for commercials because i remember i remember there would be there would be entire huge important scenes missing from the new series uh like about five years ago so that was another reason people because it's like you actually couldn't see the full episodes legitimately in the u.s and, so that would keep it going and you guys get into that in this book there is a section i think in the appendix where it talks about um uh, some of the differences between uh episodes that were done and uh, aired here versus uh, in the UK, um, or it might have been the video cassettes. I can't quite remember. You had like some yeah, kind of breakdown. There were some broadcast stories that, like for instance, the one I can think of off the top of my head, the two doctors, the shock guy eats a rat, and they cut that from. And I don't think it was all of the versions, but in Chicago they cut it and. Um. John LaValle actually wrote to the station at the time, and the response he got is they said it wasn't important to the plot. <laughs> but yeah, I think just... sometimes broadcasters just don't know who they're broadcasting to, right? You yeah. know, like mm-hmm. fans would be like, I can't believe that you cut out like two seconds of a rat being eaten, and you'd be like, is that important to you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all I was watching for. It's the principle too. It's the principle. It's it's yeah. knowing that somebody's made that choice on your behalf. That's that's so frustrating. Yeah. 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 But, Absolutely. Uh, now the term Hoovian too. I, I I might just be a dunce, but is this an American term? Is this not a uh, a British term? Because it's mentioned in the foreword. Um, it, it it is actually an American word. So in it was first used in 1982 in uh, the Doctor Who Fan Club of America, their first issue of their newsletter. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that they were probably using that term. That's uh, a club that originated in Colorado. Uh, and I think they were using that term for themselves. And in that first issue, they, they say, hey, we're having like, a, you know, we're having a gathering, you know, all the Whovians can come and show up. And then they changed the name of their newsletter uh, to the Hoovian Times, I think is that what it is? Mm, Maybe I've, yeah, I've heard of I, that. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting. Ter- I think I, you know Doctor Who fans have this argument, right? So <laughs> I, I think some people love the term Hoovian. I am one of those. Okay, <laughs> other people dislike the term Hoovian. Gary Russell, who wrote our foreword and was the former script editor on the new series, uh, you know, kind of weighs in, and he's not as much of a fan of it. So. Um, so there's like a little bit of like the trekker trekkie like division mm-hmm. on the Hoovian, right? You know, and um, so does, does he have a preferred term? Is there an alternate term to Hoovian out there, or is it just they don't want to label it all? They yeah. just want to say fans of Doctor Who, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's weird because now I think it's kind of a universal thing. I think. I want to say, like, in one of her first interviews, Jodie Whittaker used the term, 
So I think mm-hmm. now it's just kind of out there, and yeah, I don't think you can you can stop it now. No, yeah. kind of an interesting story. There's a a project. A lot of us who were authors of the book were involved in different fan projects. Projects that me and some of the other members are involved in is the Doctor Who Fanzine Preservation Project. So one of the advantages that we had as a team was we were involved in projects that already collected mass amounts of fanzines for long-term preservation and things like that. A number of years ago, we were contacted by the Oxford English Dictionary when they were trying to make Hoovy an official word. And they asked us, like, you're the fanzine preservation project. Do you have the fanzine in which Hoovian's in? Well, yes, we do. And so we sent them the information, and then the word became word. So ironically, Americans might accidentally have twice been responsible for the word Hoobian, <laughs> okay, creating it, and then two, proving that it was like a real word that then made it into the Oxford English Dictionary, right? So um, I think those UK fans are really mad at us now, so I don't know. <laughs> but I, I will say this, which is interesting. We, we do approach in the book. Uh, a little bit of the difference between American and UK fans. And I know Rob helped with that section a little bit, so um, I think he might have a chance to talk about it. But we, we th- there's this, you know, love-hate relationship. The reality is we all love the same show, right? We, we all like it. Um, but we've all also experienced it differently in our mm-hmm. lives, right? And, and maybe, Rob, if you want to talk about that part of the book, maybe a little, so... Yeah, it was one of those things we didn't really want to, you know, dwell on too much, like the negative part of it. But there really um, are some things that are different or, you know, they're still one of the things they still talk about to this day is that we got to see the five doctors before they did. (laughs) Because it got shown here on the actual anniversary and there it wasn't shown till a few days later but the thing is getting mad at the fans for that is kind of pointless <laughs> they weren't the ones who scheduled it you could have you could have taped it and watched it later come on <laughs> out, of yeah. respect, out of respect so you know there are things like that there's the whole the thing i mentioned earlier about how you know if you saw it in the uk you were always starting everyone started at the same place because it was before there were repeats or video releases or anything like that. But in the U S you always started with a different story. And, um, there are a bunch of other things like there was a big, it was a big deal when they showed the trailer for day of the doctor at, um, um, San Diego comic-con. Yeah. At, at comic-con. And they didn't show it in the UK. People were furious over that. Well, you also mentioned, I think, that the filming of it here sometimes can be a point of contention as well, right? That uh, when when episodes are filmed here. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be as big of a deal. But you know, there's always been that. Oh, you're just catering to Americans. Mm. You film there, but it gives it like kind of a bigger scope if it's actually in a you know now they shoot not really overseas but they shoot you know like in lanzarote and they shot um vampires of venice where is it is it serbia i think 
it's a town that's meant to look like that kind of accidentally looks like Venice. I, I've been to Venice and I was fooled by it. So, you know, that's <laughs> okay. I, I might I just not be very observant, though. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it looked enough know, like Venice that it worked. I'll, I'll add to that, too, and that is that truly, like, superficial, right? Because what yeah. ends up happening is many of those UK fans or even Australian and New Zealander and German or wherever fans will come to conventions and all of us, those of us who are, who are pretty active in who circles, we all know each other. We all like and respect each other. You know, we'll, we'll go to conventions in the UK or whatever the case might be. And the reality is we all have the same love and enjoyment of the same program. And, you know, this is a book about the history of a British television program in the United States. Like it's, it's a huge celebration of this amazing import that we got, how we discovered it and why we think the book is important is because the American experience is different. Um, and I think when we wrote the book, we, it's accessible to everyone, right? So we made sure that we defined every term so that if you were a, a, a fan who was in another country, and you didn't know what PBS was, we would explain what the public broadcasting system was and how it worked, right? And so it wasn't just like an American will pick up the book and look at it and go, oh, I get it, you know, okay, no problem. We would explain terms and make sure that anybody reading it would understand how our experience was different uh, from others and how they might have seen it. So, And there are even little things, too, like we had the, the first set of DVDs came out on September 11, 2001. So we mentioned how, you know, people felt guilty going out and buying DVDs that day. And we explained, you know, th this was what Americans refer to as 9-11. And one of our beta readers said, do you really need to explain that? But if you think about it, if someone who's 17 or 18 now picks the book up, they, they're not really going to necessarily be familiar with that mm -hmm. and add to that the fact that english dating is reversed so yeah. really the date would be 11 slash 9 in another country yeah. so saying 9 11 makes no sense other and in some cases people think that 9 11 means the emergency call 9 11 mm -hmm. and not the date 9 the month of september 11th you know yeah so. well it sounds like you are making a historical document here that people will want to look at down the road definitely too so you know i mean this this seems like it has lasting value so you want to be sure people in the future can figure it out yeah and you know that was one of the things that we mentioned early on in the book we kind of thought somebody needs to document all this stuff before it's too late and it's like well if maybe we should do it because if we wait around for someone else to do it it'll never get done yeah yeah and i mean this is like the first book like this right like i don't think that there's been uh, at least you know in, i think it mentions it in the book itself but this is this is the first like real definitive overview of of american doctor sorry american doctor who history um so you know that's uh I don't know, that's handy. It's handy. Like, I realized, oh, I can use this if I, you know, if I need to, to like, really nail down some information. Because otherwise, my best bet is to, like, I don't know, go on the Internet and take my chances with, uh, with, with various claims. Um, so, you know, and I might be yeah. puzzling my way through threads on different forums just to, 
you know, and see who sounds who sounds like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, well, and that was an advantage of the team that we had was that a lot of us have been in fandom for a long time, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of to give a, a shout out to like you know Jennifer Adams Kelly and also Janine Fennick. You know, they've been fans. You know, in some cases since. And so we had people who could, you know, fact check things for us. And Mm. one of the things that's kind of neat uh, and is actually talked about and mentioned in in the upcoming issue of Doctor Who magazine is there are some uh, stories in Doctor Who that people believe to be true about American fans or American fans' involvement in the show uh, that we were able to discover the exact accurate truth on, right? And so um, in, in an upcoming issue of Doctor Who magazine, in issue 517, uh, there's a, a story about whether or not an American fan artist had, you know, actually painted the painting that appears in Time Lash. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of discovered the truth of whether or not that was painted by the American fan artist or not. So I might leave that there just as a little teaser. (laughs) Oh, go ahead. Oh, one of the other things, too, like you said, checking things on the Internet. If you check the Internet in reference to the TV movie, you're going to probably see that it didn't do well in the ratings because it aired against the series finale of Roseanne. Uh Uh-huh. And that gets repeated everywhere, and it's not true. It's not even close to being true. <laughs> are the dates wrong, or is it just the numbers are wrong? It's well, this isn't. This is not a, This one I'll actually say because it's out there, but anyone can find this. It was actually the second to last story in the season prior to the final season. So if you okay. watch the show, it's when. Dan, the character by played by John Goodman, had his heart attack. And I think it was the, if I remember yeah. right, his heart attack was in the story before that. And so it was the, the episode that came after that. So it was a big kind of like event episode, okay. so and to speak. Is he or is he not alive kind of thing? Yeah, okay. So. But also, Roseanne was popular. But I have a feeling that the the overlap between those two fandoms is not is not you know like I remember watching Roseanne, but I I, I really think that that they it wasn't draining too too much from the yeah the yeah Doctor who well, it was who and it was it. pretty dubious by the end of its run too. I mean, I watched some of the early seasons, but by by the last season, it was not a show I was watching. Um, I was like when they were like millionaires or something, and but that was all a dream, right? That was all like a uh, a dream I even yeah, I to think cope it with was. Death or something. Um, <laughs> because I think it turned out he did die from the heart attack, so the whole last season was her imagining they had won the lottery, but he was dead. And, so. and they were doing AbFab <laughs> stuff, so there was like a British connection, if I remember. <laughs> right. um, but, okay. uh, wow. but there's there was there was some work that uh, John Lavalley and also Stephen Hill did in doing the research about those episodes. And that was that a lot of people think that Doctor Who had not done well. Mm-hmm. And because of the nature, Fox was a pretty new network at that time. Mm-hmm. And so in certain markets, Doctor Who actually had huge shares, 11, okay. 15, like big, big numbers. 
but it, because of how Fox was operating, it was regional, so it was kind of weird. Like, it did really well in Chicago. It did really well, I think, in Minneapolis and, and other places. But for the whole Fox network, it 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 did average. It actually yeah. was average. It was not okay. really below average. It was just average, you know. But it um, spiked but in certain for, places, you're saying, depending on... Yeah, it, it's... The problem is that they also aired it during Sweeps Week, which... Mm. You don't want to be average during sweeps week, right? So you want yeah. to spike your your viewing audience so that you can charge your advertisers more money for the next upcoming half year, right? And so um, I think that had an impact. Um, we also talk about the fact that a lot of people thought that the TV movie was intended as the start of a series. And had it done really well, I think that's the case, but we discovered really that it was meant as a TV movie and not as a pilot for a, for a series. And that's talk, we talk about a lot about that. Okay. And there's other books, an excellent book called Regeneration, uh, written by Gary Russell, who did our foreword, that I highly recommend if people want to know more about the TV movie. Yeah, because I hear that all the time. That they're, like, if that succeeded, we would have had like an American Doctor Who or something. Like, mm -hmm. It would have become more and more American. and. Uh, and maybe we wouldn't have had the the the, the new series, but uh, um, but yeah, you have to wonder with the internet when you when things get traction, right? Um, well, yeah, and you know, I think that's probably true because if you look at Fox's record around that time with any kind of show and like science fiction shows in general. If Doctor Who had got picked up, it probably would have lasted for a season, yeah. maybe two if it was lucky. And then mm -hmm. it's a, there's a good chance that the new series would never have happened. So in retrospect, it's probably good that it didn't. Yeah, because yeah, Fox yeah. News back then was like TBS today. They would just like they just would come up with an idea and air a show for like a year or two, and it would be gone. And and it was it took a while before that I think they got traction with some of the shows that that landed like Mary with children and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. The, uh, um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, Nick is, uh, the, the, the role playing game for Dr. Who you, yes. there's a section there and I guess there was a games workshop version that, that, that never quite got made, but, hmm. um, but could have been the original Dr. Who except Fossa came in and, and did it. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, there's a great story. Obviously, you know, Bedrock's Games does games, so we should talk about games, right? And uh, one of the things that's kind of uh, a great story that we cover in the book is that um, there were not a lot of sci-fi role-playing games out on the market, okay? Uh, and, this, and I'm talking, this is mid-1980s, so we're talking 1984, 1985. Uh, prior to that, um, I think the only games that were out were Metamorphosis Alpha, Traveler and TSR had put out their own uh, Star Frontiers game, and in in around 1983, FASA, which is an American company in Chicago, Illinois, uh, got the rights to do a Star Trek game. So there was like a fourth sci-fi game out there. But in the early days of role playing, considering role playing started around 73, we're 10 years in. There's only four games, uh, sci-fi games that you can play it. And Traveler is renowned for having very complex rules, very ex physics is exact in it, and things like that. 
and sci-fi was a, a pretty big thing, right? No, no Star Wars role-playing game yet or anything mm-hmm. like that. And it just so turned out that FASA was going after licenses. And uh, Ross Babcock and also uh, Jordan Weissman, who are the owners of, of FASA, um, young guys just out of college, um, they basically were huge in the Chicago area. And they said, hey, you know, we got a Star Trek role-playing game license. Let's go after a Doctor Who license. What they didn't know was at the same time that they decided to go after the license in the UK, Games Workshop, which is one of the big game companies in the UK, a lot of people know them for uh, their their White Dwarf magazine and also for uh, basically doing Warhammer and Warhammer 40K, they had a team who had some ideas and said, hey, why don't we try to write a Doctor Who role-playing game? And so a number of people on their team, Ian Marsh, Peter Darvalev, and some other people kind of were working on a system, and no one knew it. There's kind of a fun story in the book in which there was this race to come out with a Doctor Who role-playing game, and it boiled down to the Americans contacted the BBC first. Mm. And in a reverse of styles. And what ended up happening was the UK group was trying to figure out a game mechanic. And once they had the game mechanic, they were going to approach the BBC. Mm. The Americans (laughs) did it in reverse. They were like, let's get the license from the BBC, (laughs) then we'll make a game. All right. And so um, in, in the book, we talk about this. And we had an opportunity to interview some of the people who were involved in that. Uh, both FASA and uh, Games Workshop over the years. And uh, it, um, literally, the Americans got the license because they asked first. Okay. And then okay. once the license was inked, there was no more race, right? So Games Workshop had to abandon their idea for a Doctor Who game. And um, the U.S. had a chance to write one. And the American FASA Doctor Who game still has a lot of people who are interested in it and, and like it. It comes under some criticism, okay, just because in any role-playing game you sometimes have to make up things beyond, you know, like if you're going to make rules about how TARDISes work, for example, mm-hmm. and there's not enough information in the series, you might have to just make up some stuff. Mm. And unfortunately, now that the series is 50 years old instead of only 20 years old, there are some things that now contradict that game, right? Just because okay. time has moved on. So the game the game mechanic works pretty good. It's an okay game. I really like it. I have a long-running campaign with it. Um, but it turned out that the gaming story of Doctor Who, at least when it comes to role-playing games, starts as an American story. Mm. And it's also probably one of those stories that there's another reason sometimes UK fans get mad at us once in a while, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, which is kind of, kind of funny. So, um, just as a side note to that story, and this is also covered in the book, years later, the team that worked on the Games Workshop version, uh, two of those writers had a chance to get together. Uh, they did not revive the original mechanic idea they had, but the second Doctor Who role-playing game to come out was called Time Lord, and that was written by two of the people that were involved in the game's workshop idea. And uh, eventually, that was the first English 
uh, Doku role-playing game that came out. Mm. And just to finish the story, um, there's a, currently a, a, a Doctor Who role-playing game that is currently in print and has been for about the last uh, 10 years, made by Cubicle 7, which is an English company. And the irony of that, of course, is in our modern day and age, both UK and American writers write for the game, right? Because thanks to the internet, thanks to not having to be in the same place, you know, it, it's truly an international version now. Story behind all that. So, and uh, no, I, I just I found that very interesting. Also, the mechanic that they were thinking of using for the original game you mentioned was like a, a card-based system of some kind. Um, yes, and so. You know, um, but uh, but but yeah. So uh, you know, we we I'm, I want to let you guys go soon because I've, I've had you here for like forty five minutes. But before we go, I did want to ask, um, like, what what have you guys been doing to promote the book, and how how has the reception to the book been? Um, well, we've been doing. Um, Nick and Steve and Jennifer did a signing. Um, this past week at Graham Crackers in Chicago, Jennifer and Jan had done one the previous week out in New York. Um, was a, a smaller one, I think. We'll be doing conventions. Um, some of us will be at Li Who in November, and um, some of us will be at Chicago Tardis, of course, also in November, and we'll be um, at Gallifrey out in LA in February and we're doing some smaller things to like library signings and things like that in the near future or you know even we have stuff planned out till next spring yeah we know that we'll be doing some in-store signings too uh, we hope to be doing a signing at Alien Entertainment in Chicago uh, also known as the Doctor Who store um, uh, hopefully, we might go to Indiana and maybe do a signing at uh, Who North America, which is a another big Doctor Who uh, kind of distributor. And, and some people might be thinking, like, "Hey, where can we currently get the book?" Um, it's available online from the publisher, so and that's atbpublishing.com. Yeah, I'm going to put a link in the uh, in the description. Like it's kind too. of being sold, um, mainly because that's where the books are right now right mm -hmm. so like you want to get your copy the fastest and the easiest that's the place to go um but any one of those outlets i know have it and, and can carry it some of the places that we just mentioned so um I, I recommend people go and check that out and the other the other question so far the reviews have been good we haven't really had too many full reviews you know people have been commenting online on social media but we haven't really had a, a full review yet. Um, some people got advanced excerpts from the book that they reviewed, but we're still waiting um, for a for a full review. But you know, like we said earlier, the book's pretty dense, so it's going to take people a while to get through. I know even we knew how many pages it would be, but. I was pretty surprised when I got my copy and I said, yeah, this is really big. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a very big book. And, and, the, and it's got a lot of information on each page. So it's, it's, uh, it's really, I, I, would, I would imagine it would take a reviewer some time to, to really properly get through it. But I did see it was mentioned in USA Today, right? There was a, uh, 
um, mm-hmm. at least a mention of it, uh, I saw pop up. And, uh, and, and, and Nick, you, you were talking about some upcoming Doctor Who magazines. Uh, yes. Um, you know, you, you were saying that we got mentioned uh, in, in USA Today uh, at their website, which was very nice. It also got covered on IGN, which was pretty cool, and a couple other places. I think those people who are really into fandom kind of realize how cool a book it is. Mm. And and I also want to say, while it is, you can open it to any page. If you want to read just about the gaming stuff or if you want to read just about whatever, you can flip it open to whatever page you want, and I think you can get in it pretty easy. Um, we, we're pretty fortunate because... In the current issue of Doctor Who magazine, which is issue 516, it's the first one with Jody Whittaker on the cover. Um, it's out in the UK now. I believe it comes out this week in the US. Um, we were fortunate enough that we get mentioned in there. They do an article about the Doctor Who uh, USA tour in 86 and 87, and we're in the US, <laughs> so we had some of the best photos and pictures. Uh, and, and some really good information that helped enhance one of their articles. And uh, they they mention our book and, and mention, you know, the writing team and stuff and, and use some of our photographs. It's pretty cool to see one of your own photographs in Doctor Who magazine, so that's very nice. Um, and in, in the issue after that, uh, the upcoming, what what is now the upcoming issue in the U.K., um, and then two issues away for us in, in 517, uh, Steve gets interviewed uh, in that issue. Um, and we're hoping that they're going to do a full review of it because I think they're, I think they're seeing the value of this as a book. Uh, and, and we hope that they have a chance to give it a once-over. So um, we're very proud to be in Doctor Who magazine because it's a – well-respected and international, you know, well-fact-checked magazine about Doctor Who that really does an amazing job uh, researching. If you don't know that magazine and you're a Doctor Who fan, I have to recommend it. It's just a great read, so. And, uh, okay, and so, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, end the podcast in a moment because I I don't want to take up too much of your time. Do you guys have any uh, additional thing you wanted to mention before we go? Um, buy the book. It's really, except it's really interesting. Hopefully, you know, really, you don't have to be. I think people are thinking that it's more focused on classic series, which I guess is a fair assumption to make because it's a history. We we cover that stuff more, but it does go all the way up to present day so even if you're only familiar with the new series you'll still get something out of the book in fact i think there's a picture of you as the 12th doctor right was that correct yeah there is (laughs) (laughs) yeah the Um, book it really does it covers a i think it's a good blend um it looked it looked like a fairly nice mix of new and old so i think whether you're classic series fan new fan or both you'll there'll be plenty in here um I'd like to mention just that um, a lot of people might not realize this, but there's some very, and you've mentioned this a little bit earlier, there's some good and rare photos in the book that in some cases we happen to be in the right place in the right time, or we have some photos of things that happened in America that not a lot of people have seen. And one, one good example of that would be 
uh, we have a, a photo of Roger Mueller, who is going to, um, American actor who is going to play the Doctor in an American theatrical production of Doctor Who called The Inheritors of Time. And it turns out that they'd gotten very far along in the production process for that play, including having done some read-throughs at conventions, um, but the play fell through. And so, like, for example, in the book, we actually have a photo of a read-through that he's in with two of the other actors. I have never seen anywhere in Doctor Who circles a photo of Roger Mueller doing a read-through or, or, or being in the part, right? And so that's kind of rare. And there's, there's some other fun things, such as, like, the, uh, uh, the flying disc, right? The Frisbee, the Doctor Who labeled Frisbee uh, that a lot of people didn't know was kind of, like, made. It was not Frisbee brand, but, like, an offshoot thing. Or, like, a box of rice checks where the art team on rice checks hid a picture of a Dalek and the Doctor on the rice checks box and you're like what like you know like 1991 doctor and the dalek on rice checks box you guys didn't know that like really so oddball but fun stuff that if you really go through the photos in the book there's some great stuff there okay well yeah i I, again it's uh red white and who and it's available at uh what's the what's the website again nick uh atb Mm -hmm. uh publishing like alpha tango bravo publishing that, uh, okay, I'll, I'll post a link below, um, and uh, and and people will be able to follow it there. And and I, I you know I, I got my copy about a week ago, and I I, I recommend it to people. I, I I'm I'm enjoying it. It's a it's a really it, like I said, it's a really big book, and it's got a lot of information, and uh, it's just a lot. It's there's a lot to sort of sift through and make sense of. So. It's it's a kind of book where you could sit there and just read it, or you could just kind of pick around and find the bits that interest you. So, so all right. And again, we've been talking with Nick Seidler and Robert Warnock and Adam Balderstone, and uh, we will. Yeah, I guess we'll talk to you later. <laughs>